If you'd like to continue your permaculture education while remaining indoors, I recommend picking up a deck of Food Forest cards. With these illustrated, informative cards, you put yourself in the center of a web of relationships, joining together plants, insects, animals, and people. With these cards, you will play fun, challenging games based on these connections, matching the inputs on one card with the outputs of another to create beneficial relationships. For example, you can take one card that produces nitrogen, such as clover, and connect it to a nitrogen consumer, like blackberries, one card that needs a trellis, such as grape, with another card that acts as a trellis, like linden. By matching these relationships, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. In addition to being a fun game, Food Forest cards are responsibly sourced, and every deck sold goes toward planting multiple trees. They not only offset their impact, but honestly improve the environment. Find out more and order your deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Rob Avis, a permaculture practitioner from Calgary, Canada, and one of the founders of Verge Permaculture. He joined me during the COVID-19 pandemic to discuss what we can do to creatively respond to this and other crises. That includes our role as teachers and leaders, who can help others while they're struggling for security, and how we can build resilience in our homes and our communities. He shares how together we can soften the blow to ourselves and others by preparing for the economic changes possible with the scenarios of hyperinflation, deflationary contraction, and hyperstagflation, the latter of which he sees as the most likely outcome of those three at this time. A past guest of the show, we get rolling with his thoughts on how to handle what we're currently facing, so I'll link to Rob's earlier interviews in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about his background, his work on harvesting rainwater, and the framework he and his business partner Dakota Cohen have developed to simplify the application of permaculture to gardening and agriculture. Enjoy this conversation with Rob Avis, and I'll join you again after. What is your perspective on what we can do as permaculture practitioners in order to prepare and respond to large disasters as we sit here in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic? I think that there's a multi-pronged approach that needs to be taken. I was speaking to a friend of mine not that long ago who I deeply respect. He's a internationally renowned, renowned economist. And the thing that really struck me about that conversation was his comment about now was not the time to be sitting around and watching Netflix. It was a time of to take leadership. And I sat back and I thought about that for a long time. And I'm still thinking about it. And I think that that comment is applicable for all people that are either teaching or practicing permaculture right now. We live in an age where less than 3% of the population farms. We've centralized our food systems. We require massive factories and automated machines to produce our food. And ultimately, this COVID crisis is exposing all the cracks in the system. And so I believe in some of our earlier conversation we, we had talked about and fragility and fragility and resilience and kind of the difference between those, those different things. And I think right now we're in a, in a period of time that we'll look back in the future and say, my gosh, this was a historic moment in my life. And, and so now is the time to kind of keep that in mind and think about what sorts of actions we can take to ameliorate as much as possible the, the pain that we're dealing with right now, but keeping the not too distant future in our mind at the same time, because I, I believe that 
what's coming down the pipe economically is going to make what we're currently dealing with seem like child's play. And if folks are, are interested in if exploring the different kind of potential outcomes, because I think anybody that's making predictions right now uh, is just a charlatan. We can't really know what's going to happen. We can just know that what's going to happen is going to be different than what we're used to and potentially not very pleasant. But if you if you search Spanish flu waves on Google and go to the image section, you'll you'll see what happened in the 1918 Spanish flu. They had, they had multiple waves of this disease. And so all this curve flattening right now is potentially elongating the effect of the, the virus. And if you look at that Spanish flu curve, it, it shows that the second wave was five times worse than the first. So if the disease does get better or worse, sorry, that's going to be a really big issue to deal with. And then in terms of how our leaders are responding to this, you know, the response that we've seen kind of in the socioeconomic decisions and, and policy that's being put forth is really exposing all the cracks in our supply chains right now. And so in the short term, we need to be gardening and teaching people how to garden. We can't just, you know, go into our own little rabbit holes and, and prep. We have to actually help other people through this. Right now, we're seeing a massive resurgence of interest in gardening. And most of these people that are gardening for the first time in their life or for the first time in a really long time have a high chance of failure because they don't even know what they're doing because most people don't know how to grow food. And then in the long term, we've got to start anticipating for some possible outcome, either in hyperinflation, deflationary contraction, or, or hyperstagflation. And all three of those different scenarios have massive repercussions. And what's interesting is that permaculture is set up to help manage the pain on the back end of all of those three scenarios. And something you mentioned as we were setting up this conversation was about the impact that this has as this ripples through our supply chains and business on housing and our ability to take care of our pure, basic human needs of food and shelter. And, you know, in some cases with stores being closed and things like that, clothing. Right now with where you sit and look at this, what are your thoughts on these other aspects that are being impacted? It's really hard to know how it's all going to play out. But if you look at what happened in 2008, just to kind of put some, some numbers to this. So the U.S. has been a country for over 240 years. And the interesting thing is, is that it took you guys to Obama, took that period of time for you guys to reach a $1 trillion debt ceiling. And in the last few weeks, the U.S. government has printed, I believe it's, I could be wrong on this, but I believe it's $4 trillion. Do you know if that number's right? That sounds about right between the different economic packages that have gone through. I've also heard a figure of up to $10 trillion because of economic easing from the Fed. Yeah. And so, I mean, just to look at that from a exponential function. So it took 240 years to get to $1 trillion, and it's taken 12 years to get to another four. So that gives you a sense of kind of where the debt levels are going. And after the 2008 crisis, renting in the United States went up dramatically because a lot of people lost their houses. And so now we find ourselves in a situation where renters are not able to pay rent because they don't have jobs. And as a result of that, the landlords aren't able to collect on it. And so they're not making their mortgage payments. And so we have the potential for another massive housing crash. And these are not stats for me. I'm not an economist. I've been studying this quite a bit because I think the 
we all depend on a functional economy. As, as much as permaculturists want to pretend that we can trade seashells and sunflower seeds, we still fundamentally live in a paradigm where we need to make money. And so as long as that paradigm exists, as we watch the economic system disintegrate, it's going to have cascading effects in the way that we, we house. And I could see a situation in multiple cities across the U.S. and Canada where we could look at Detroit as the analog. So when Detroit collapsed and everybody left, houses and lots were being sold for a for dollar. And you had a bunch of people moving in and starting massive urban farms and kind of rebuilding the city once prices kind of came back to a place where people could actually afford them, which is basically free. So that, that's kind of the scale of, of, I think, what that would kind of be a tail event, like what could possibly happen. The thing is, is that we don't really know what's going to play out until we watch how these governments respond in the next coming months. And so nobody really knows how bad it's going to get, both from a disease perspective, but also the kind of policy that our governments are going to are going to take on. And so Mark Blythe, this economist that I've been watching quite a bit of lately, made a really great comment. He said, you know, these governments are, are propping up cruise companies, cruise ships and and airplanes, which are good businesses, I guess, for tourism and things like that. But the reality is how many people are going to want to get on cruise ships and airplanes after this? And, you know, that's a, a difficult question to answer. So if there's only a limited amount of money and they're putting money into those types of things, then what does that mean for the rest of the economy? And how, how does that implicate us kind of at, at the ground level? And looking at the worldwide governmental responses to this and the variation from country to country, it still looks like the people on the ground are the ones who are bearing the brunt of this as unemployment goes higher and higher. My understanding is the United States has, has lost all the jobs gained since the Great Recession. There's a lot of talk about a snapback once things begin to open up. But with these secondary and possibly tertiary waves, as you mentioned, we saw with the Spanish flu as our last, you know, it's a a good pandemic to study because of the global impact of it. And I really recommend The Great Influenza by John Barry if anybody wants to read more about that, because he gets into all the levels of that pandemic, as well as talking about the way that modern pandemics work and the difference between things like coronaviruses and the common cold and whatnot. But with what we're seeing from government, what can we as permaculture practitioners do in this immediate crunch as we're looking at the loss of jobs? As I've talked to some of our friends in the community who had their next one, two, three years planned out for what they were going to be doing for projects and classes and things and just kind of all evaporated, how do we continue to do the good work and, as you say, function in this economy? So I think Mollison really nailed this on the head uh, when he said the problem is the solution. And I would paraphrase that as a crisis is a horrible thing to waste. And I think personally, the interest in what I do for a living, both on the consulting side as well as on the education side, has never been stronger. And I think that, that people are just who are just getting into permaculture, people who are in permaculture right now have been in it for a while, have to recognize that we are in a perfect storm. So a fraction of, of our population knows how to grow food. A fraction of, of the farmers that used to grow food in the 1940s are growing food right now. And all the, the systems around us are, are basically uh, breaking. And so we are looking at, uh, as, as conventional jobs 
uh, tank and restaurants fail and the um, tourism industries fail and some of the more kind of, we'll call them luxury services or goods become less in demand. Things like the services that a permaculture designer or consultant or educator do are rapidly increasing in demand. And so I used the word there just a few minutes ago called hyperstagflation. And so what that means is basically movies, cruises, airplanes, or air, air trips, those things stagnate in a situation like this. Food, and we'll call it permaculture design, are going to inflate because the demand for them is going to increase. And I don't know about you, but for the last decade, I've pursued my permaculture passion because I believed in it. And, you know, and I did everything in my power to basically stay in the game. And I, I subsided. That's how I'm going to refer to the last 10 years. Like I did, I did all right, but I didn't, at the end of the day, when I was out giving talks or talking to my family or my friends outside of my permaculture circles, they still kind of thought I was a bit crazy. And now I'm not crazy anymore. And all of a sudden, I can't keep up with the email coming in. I can't keep up with the phone calls. We just launched a permaculture design course online. And in order to make it really accessible, which I think we should be doing, we have hundreds of students in this class. We were going to teach live in-person classes this summer, but they all got canceled because of COVID. And so we, we pivoted. And all of a sudden, all these people that have been kind of on the fence over the last two years decided to pay attention and listen up and, and start taking this stuff seriously. And so I think those are the types of opportunities that exist for us. And beyond that, just being an opportunity, I think it's our, our duty to step up and lead. And so every one of these people doing permaculture in your own individual communities has an incredible responsibility to steward and distribute this knowledge in such a way that uh, we don't end up in a situation like the Great Depression. What did I read? During the Great Depression, 5% of the urban population starved to death. I'm not sure we're going to go there, but food supplies could become pretty pretty tight depending on how this all this whole thing plays out. And you mentioned stagflation there, and you also had two other scenarios of how things might play out over time. Could you touch on those as well? Yeah. So the, the things that I've been looking at economically, because they're so important to how we coexist when something of this magnitude occurs, it includes contractionary deflation, the middle scenario, which is hyper stagflation, which we just talked about. So some things stagnate, some things inflate. And then hyperinflation. And there's great historical context for the first two. So the Great Depression was an example of deflationary contraction. And so the, the way that deflation works is that there's plenty of goods in the economy, things to buy, services and products. However, there's no money around to purchase them. And so people or companies start to reduce their prices in order to get people to buy again. And as a result of that, their profit margins go down and then they fire more people, which leaves more unemployment and less money in the economy. And then they have to lower their prices more. And so it becomes this downward spiral of bankruptcy, unemployment, and lack of velocity in the money system, so to speak. So lack of transactions occurring. And so that's a deflationary contraction. And I think that's, that's a possibility because if you think about it, there's still lots of, of stuff to buy out there but we're all stuck in our homes right now. And, uh, you know, at least in the United States, if you guys are getting checks from, from the government there, not very much though, mind you, like $1,200, which barely will pay for groceries for a month. So 
there's not much money. There's lots of stuff to buy. And so you could see that there could be vast parts of the, the economy that kind of go into a deflation. The other thing that happens in these deflations is that debt becomes worth more because basically the, the currency actually increases in value, which also has the effect of, of making the, the debt that you own seem more expensive because there's less money floating around. The other side of the coin is hyperinflation. And this is when there's piles of money floating around, but there's nothing to buy. And so the middle scenario of hyperstagflation seems a little bit more realistic because as people stop eating out, food supplies become more scarce or as people, I actually think like hoarding is a pretty rational response to this right now because people are worried that their supply chains aren't capable of meeting their needs. And so as people hoard, the amount of food available goes down. And so you end up getting inflationary forces acting on the cost of food. And so some parts of the economy get more expensive, so your money buys less. And some parts of the economy decrease in value and your money buys more. And so there's various hedges that you can can engage in to try and protect yourself. And so the, the common ones are gold and silver is what you would typically buy for inflation. And cash is what you'd have on hand for deflation. But I think permaculture offers a better option for hedging those issues than anything else. And I think if you can think through permaculture as a system, I think you can start coming up with some really productive hedges that kind of meet our ecological ethos while ensuring that we, we have an insurance policy in both those scenarios. And with that in mind, what would you suggest generally for permaculture practitioners to be engaging in right now, you know, as we're all kind of stuck inside? You've mentioned gardening and growing food and helping share that information, but what are some other suggestions that you would have? So I think right now, if you're an educator, reaching out to hubs. Hubs are generally places where people congregate. So in this scenario, there'd be digital locations that people congregate. Reaching out to these hubs in your community and introducing yourself, going and having a conversation with them, even even if it's just on Zoom or whatever, and telling them about what you do and trying to find win-win situations for their organization and yours. So for an educator, a win-win is basically getting access to new pupils to be able to teach them how they can productively respond to this change. For the business, being able to connect somebody that has that knowledge means that they're providing a service to their community, and that's important because they're, they're delivering value. And there may be even opportunities for another exchange to occur between those two entities. For people that are just backyard permaculturists or, or farmers, so let's talk about producers. Right now, as a producer, this is the one in a hundred year event that you've waited for. So a lot of farmers and permaculture producers, backyard gardeners, or I would say market gardeners, kind of like most permaculture practitioners, most years just subside. They make enough money to support their quality of life and they get to do what they, what they love. This is a year when those people are going to make a living. They're going to do well for themselves and they're going to get a, a living wage because people will want local food. And so that includes farmers that are around the, the peri-urban part of the city and market gardeners that are inside of the city. Backyard gardeners, your kind of responsibility is to reach out to your neighbors in spite of social distancing and ask them if they're growing a garden and offer your knowledge so that they, your neighbors can actually succeed at their endeavors, succeed at growing food. 
we have got to help each other. It's not a dog eat dog situation. We've got to reach out and help help people. It's really important. And then people that aren't in permaculture that are listening to it, this is a great time to buff up on your skills. The tsunami is here. This is not going to be the last tsunami that comes. This one's probably not even that bad compared to what it could be. Like if this was a antibiotic resistant bacteria, like the bubonic plague or something like that, this would be way worse. This would be 10 times worse. Or if this was, you know, peak oil, like if we actually had a precipitous decline in oil, we would be absolutely hooped. There are an unlimited number of fragilities that lurk out there. And so right now is a wake up call for the next one that happens. And so when this all ends, like right now we're all in survival mode, but when this all ends, the way that we prevent this from happening again is that people start to preserve food again. People start to have backyard gardens. People keep six months to a year supply of food in their basement. People get out of debt and start to invest some of their time into learning how to take care of themselves. Because ultimately, the, the message that's coming loud and clear for me is that governments are wholly unprepared to deal with any kind of level of catastrophe beyond uh, little bumps in the road. For those people who are landless, what are some of those skills that you would suggest people start to learn? It sounds like from what you were saying, you know, with food preservation, that we might want to look at canning or fermentation. I can imagine some other like homespun skills, being able to sew and be able to make repairs around the home. With what you're seeing and where your thoughts go, what are other skills or areas that people could start to study to create some more of that resilience within their home and their lives? The whole economy is going to simplify, at least for a period of time. And and if you think about a simplified economy, all of a sudden you start reducing the things on the periphery that are, are less important. So people don't buy expensive watches. They don't buy expensive cell phones. You know, they go back to basics. And so canning is one of them. One of the, the biggest limitations that urban dwellers have is access to producers. And one of the biggest limitations that producers have, and I'm talking about farmers right now, is access to urban people. And one of the reasons that is, is because farmers don't really like cities. And, and a lot of them don't really even like urban people. And urban people don't really know that farmers don't really like urban people or cities. And so there ends up being this kind of oil and vinegar scenario between these two demographics of people. Yet, ironically, the urban people need the farmers and the farmers need the, the urban people. So an urban person that doesn't have land but wants to contribute to this can go back right to chapter three in the design manual where Bill talks about needs and yields and do a simple needs and yields yield analysis on that specific system, go out and seek hubs like we just talked about, maybe buy a grain mill, which one of our colleagues has done, and start buying bushels of grain and turning them into flour from locally produced organic farms and helping to make that connection so that the farmer doesn't have to deal with the commodity industry and the urban people don't have to deal with going to stores, lining up six feet apart, or having to wait two weeks for a grocery delivery. So there's a lot of work that can happen in the food system right now in terms of creating connections. If the the average person that wants to grow food, there is so much commercial and industrial land out there that could easily be turned over right now and planted to food. There's no shortage of land. There's absolutely no shortage of land. It's just about people getting creative. Again, it's that needs and yields analysis, uh, trying to find companies that are idle right now that have land around their facilities that would allow 
people that have skills access to it to actually make a difference right now. Like we're back into victory garden territory here. We know we can do it. We've got a history of this. We've done it in the past and uh, we're just heading into spring right now. Now is the time to organize. And it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity there for people to develop buying clubs so that they can form that bridge between the urban and rural communities that, you know, we have space for different co-ops to develop. And also from what you're saying about spring and planting, for people to come together and start a seed bank program or a seed swap or a plant swap in order to help get those gardens growing and to meet their neighbors, even if it is having to line them up on a table and step away while someone comes up and picks out what they want. Absolutely. And, and you know what's interesting, Scott, is that people with web skills, so someone who would traditionally not be a gardener, has a huge role to play in this. Might be a little bit idle right now. Actually, the web people are probably not idle. But when I look at a lot of the people selling seeds or the people that are selling CSAs, there's a huge opportunity to help typically, and I'm going to use this in, in the politest way possible, digitally unsophisticated individuals who are probably really sophisticated in the garden or saving seeds or selling food person to person to use this as an opportunity, collaborate with web people and build a resilient business system that will allow them to reach a larger audience and be more efficient with how they deliver and sell. Again, this is a, an incredible opportunity to waste this crisis. I know of this one seed company up here in Canada and they still want you to print a form, fill out your seed order and fax it to them. Their company is probably worth 10x today what it was two months ago, but they still have not adopted 21st century sales protocols. And so they can't help people right now. They don't, they're not able to effectively disseminate their knowledge and their genetics because they're still operating on, on technology that doesn't work right now in this scenario. They can't go to seed swaps and sell their seeds. They've got to still use a fax and, and the mailing system. People like that can be helped immensely. And so again, if you're, if you're thinking today, like what can you do today in the midterm and in the long term, you're hopefully the ideas that you come up with will you know, mesh nicely into those different time scales. And I think that we, as a community of practitioners, as permaculturists, have an opportunity to shape the way that the world looks in six months from now by acting today. Well, and folks with those web skills, being able to create websites that look for abandoned land or lots that are available for sale in cities. And I talked about this with Robin Mello in a recent interview. You know, there are lots available here in central Pennsylvania that have been picked up from tax sales and other things that are relatively inexpensive and that the city here, and I'm sure that this is similar elsewhere, is looking for people to be using that space because it brings people into the community and makes use of something that otherwise is just sitting there. And so the city gets a bit of tax revenue from it. And now you have space to grow a garden if you want to do it that way. Or as you say, looking for businesses that have area available. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even coming back to our city here in Calgary, they've not allowed the implementation of chickens or any kind of micro livestock. Now is the time to try and push that through. Now is the time to, to get chickens through the whole city for food security. You've got a great case now. And so if you're trying to move policy in any direction, now's the time to be starting to, to do stuff. And then if it's kind of a little bit of a gray area, you know, it's a great time to ask for forgiveness as well. 
And that's one, if anybody's looking to work on policy for chickens, there are some great organizations out there that do that kind of work all the time. And not only with chickens, but other micro livestock. And if you're listening to this and would like some help, I've done policy work in the past. So feel free to reach out to me if you're looking to do something like this in the United States. I know that there are tons of folks who would like these kinds of things. And all it takes is one of us to step up and start to make that change that it can cascade for others. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are all really good things. I think the other kind of kind of meta layer that we should just briefly touch on is that it's very easy to get sucked up into all the fear. There is lots of things to be concerned about for sure, but we need to be putting on our, our design brains right now. We need to be working with the prefrontal cortex in the front of our brain. And when we get scared about stuff as humans, we're really susceptible to, to stopping the blood flow to that front part of the brain. And this is not a time to run away from saber-toothed tigers. We need to do design. We need to be making deliberate decisions about how we spend our money, where we put our time, how we prepare for the coming months, uh, both for ourselves, our families, and our communities. All of them have to be included. And it's really not a time to be... Like, there's a meme going around up here in Canada, which basically has a, a person in front of the television where they're like, oh man, I just finished Netflix. It's like, no, that's not really a a productive approach to dealing with this coronavirus. We need to be mobilizing. Rob, I always love these conversations because of your many years working within the permaculture community. You've got this great focus on what it is that you want to say, what you want to deliver, and sharing it with me and the audience. But as I always like to do with these conversations, is there anything else that you'd like to share before we draw today's conversation to a close? I think living through this crisis with everybody else, I'm taking special note of the types of things that are happening as we go through this historic moment. I, I can't stress that enough. We are in the middle of making history. In the same way that we talk about the Spanish flu, the 1918 Spanish flu, or the bubonic plague, or the Great Depression, these are moments in history that will be talked about in 100 years from now. And I have been finding myself wanting to dig into some of the stories from the people that lived through the Great Depression to try and understand what deliberate and adaptive behavior would look like or looked like back then to prepare myself for what's coming in the next three to five years. So people that are clipping articles and writing journals and taking note of the, the types of things that are just starting right now. We're just at the very beginning still. Like this is this is going to continue for a while, I think. Whether it continues with COVID or just kind of the economic repercussions, the socioeconomic and political repercussions of all of this, now is the time to be writing a journal and, and kind of taking note of what we're observing because these will be valuable lessons that will inform our design decisions in the future as well as the design decisions that future generations make. These are the types of pieces of information that people in 100 years from now will be interested in learning about because a lot of this, the day-to-day -day stuff that happens in these types of events gets lost in the noise. So people that take journals or, or record information and create signal for future generations to be able to observe are, is another way to provide value to civilization. So don't waste this crisis get out there. There's an incredible amount of opportunity out there for people that are, are resourceful. And don't stop talking to your neighbors. You can keep a distance. One of the biggest risks that we have is that we stop loving each other. We stop communicating. We stop. We don't know what a hug is after all of this because we're so terrified to even shake each other's hands. 
we need to preserve our humanity in whichever way that we can. And so connect with people. It's really important. Thanks for uh, putting these out there, Scott. It's really important that folks like you are, are interviewing people and spreading information. That's one of the most important things that we can do right now is to be that. You are a hub. That's what you are. You're, you are the center of a web. And when you do something, it affects tens of thousands of lives. And if you look at the lives that those tens of thousands of people affect, you're actually affecting millions of lives with this podcast. So don't stop. Keep going. And, uh, and thank you for all the, you're coming up on the 10th year of, of this podcast, though you said? It'll be the 10th anniversary in October. So yeah, we're in the middle of the 10th year right now. Unbelievable. Keep it up, man. Don't stop. Thank you for being a voice through all of this and helping to bring a bit of sanity to what we're feeling right now and letting people know that there are other folks who are working on this and going through it because together we form a huge community of people who are actively standing there and not running in fear or letting the panic embrace us, but working together to find positive, meaningful, and bountiful solutions. So thank you for being a part of that a continent away while we continue to work on the pieces that matter to us and our communities. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. I look forward to talking to you again. And that was Rob Avis. Find out more about him and his work at vergepermaculture.ca, and you'll find our earlier interviews and other resources in the show notes. I agree with Rob that now is a vital time for us to continue our education, take a role in creating resilience in our communities, and shift the narrative of what is possible. For ourselves, we can turn to our books, the University of YouTube, and many of the online classrooms to work on expanding our knowledge. Now would also be a great time to take that online permaculture design course if you're still looking for one. If you have skills to share, contact your friends and family and see what they want to learn more about. Can you help them with their garden design or perhaps learning how to repair something around the home? If you're a permaculture teacher, what about working to transition what you do online so that your classes can reach people where they are right now? You can begin by sharing your knowledge through one-on-one, video calls for consultations, or putting together classes of your own through webinars. For our communities, we can coordinate seed swaps by mail, and eventually in person. We can make those phone calls to the city council or mayor's office to begin the conversation about chickens or other micro-livestock, or perhaps about expanding community garden efforts so people have access to land and can grow their own food. To help with these, I've included links in the show notes to resources for each, including some places offering online classes, software to connect remotely or run webinars of your own, and to organizations working on policy change. If you have any resources that come to mind that others should know about, leave a comment in the show notes. And of course, I'm always here to help you move your projects forward. Get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, creatively respond to these uncertain times to create stability and resilience for yourself and your family while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.